0: Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Joan. Children, grades 5 and 6, you're dismissed at this time. Lynn, thank you for stepping in on short notice and Leading our worship this morning, Melanie Lee was to lead worship this morning, but uh, they had a death in the family, and um, uh, we needed to make that change so that she could be unencumbered this weekend. Have you ever been impatient, or do you ever get impatient? Have you noticed how easily we get irritated when we have to wait? Anybody admit that? Thank you for your honesty. The rest of you i won't say what i'm thinking about you right now (laughs) but what do we do right we we get in line at the airport security and we see how it branches off from the one long line into several other little uh you know where they're going to do the scanners and stuff and we start to watch who is more efficient at doing that because i want to get through it this as quickly as i can so that i can wait on the other side or you come to the grocery store, right, and you got several checkout lines, and or worse yet, you go to Costco where there isn't even an express lane, and so you know you're hooped one way or the other. Uh, but you quickly do a quick calculation of how many items total are in all of the carts before you. Right? And then you pick that line. And then the worst thing that we do is we stand in that line, wondering where we would be if we'd gone to any of those other lines. If I'd gone to that line, I'd, I'd be at the till already. And you can just feel it starting to churn inside we come up to a light we count how many cars are in each lane and we get into the lane with a few cars we take that to a whole new level sometimes don't we 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 start to check out the makes and models of each of the cars and decide which one's going to be quicker or do you ever google map a destination even in the city now like you know your way around and you know how you can get there but you want to know how fast you can get there so you put in the address. You see the preferred line, the fastest route, and then you look at the other ones, and it's like one minute slower, two minutes slower, and you're like, no way am I taking that. I gotta save that minute. I'm gonna get there and have a whole minute to spare, clip my nails or something. <laughs> we are impatient people. But if we're that impatient with minutes or hours, What happens when it becomes days, weeks, or sometimes years? What happens when we are not just impatient and irritated with the people around us, the drivers around us, the checkout clerks who are too slow, or the person who's paying with a check? I mean, who does that? But now we get impatient with God. If you have ever been impatient with God, then you're in good company this morning. Abraham had to wait 25 years before the promise of Isaac would come along. Joseph, whom we're going to be doing a study on in the summer, had to wait 13 years in prison before he was released and ascended to one of the highest positions in the land. Moses waited 80 years before he was able to do what God had called him to do. Somehow waiting is part of our journey, isn't it? But we still become impatient with God. We don't like to wait on God. And oftentimes when we wait on God, we end up in deep, dark places. And Psalm 13, David wasn't having a very good day. I mean it was probably weeks months maybe even years for him and now in in just a few verses he just pours out his heart he's completely undone and he just lets God have it If you've ever had the idea that being a follower of Jesus was going to be easy Psalm 13 should kibosh that pretty quickly Psalm 13 doesn't fit with the way that we sometimes like to package Christianity You know, sunshine and sunny ways. We want it bright and attractive. and Come to Jesus, and everything's going to be good. You know that that often isn't the case. And for that, we have Psalm 13. Let me introduce you to Psalm 13 this morning. Psalm 13 is a prayer of lament. And of the 150 psalms that we have, 50 of them would be considered laments. So it's a fairly common style of psalm. It is a brief psalm. It's only six verses. It's, in some ways, very simple. There's three pairs of verses. It's wonderfully poetic uh, in that way. It's a beautiful psalm, really. And and it's a psalm that then moves quickly from the depths up to the mountaintop, and we're going to discover that prayer, in fact, is the path from the deep distress that we might be experiencing to the heights of delight that God wants for us. And that somehow trust in God is the energy that sustains us to make that journey from the depths of the valley to the heights of the mountains. And in this psalm, David comes with all of his sorrow and all of his anxiety and brings all of his pain to God. And so for David, something is terribly wrong. We would say maybe that he's just, he's completely disoriented at the start of this. Something is amiss. Now, what you know about David is that David is a giant. He's he's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And here in Psalm 13, he writes about a time when he felt that God had left him, abandoned him. And David doesn't hide how he's feeling at all. He tells it like it is. And so as we continue to explore this morning questions in the Psalms, we ask with David, how long, Lord? And we will discover how we can move then from despair to trust. And so just a simple outline, if you're taking some notes, you might want to just jot these words down and we'll come to them again. But it's just the condition, the cry, and the choice. Condition, cry, choice. First, the condition is verses 1 and 2. And so in the opening two verses, David asks, How long, Lord? Four times. How long? How long? How long? How long? Kind of reminds us right of the road trips with our kids and they shout from the back seat. How much longer? They're getting tired and impatient. But for David, this was much more than just being tired and cranky from the back seat. He is in a bad place spiritually, emotionally, physically. He's feeling deep distress. He can no longer endure the continuing pain and pressure, and he appears, and it appears that there's no hope that things are going to get any better anytime soon. This in Psalm 13 is David being very human and very real. Did you catch that when Joan read for us? How long, Lord? Will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Four rhetorical questions. David isn't actually expecting an answer. They're really just statements of disorientation and they're intended to fix all of the blame for all of his trouble on God. So David is isn't actually wanting answers to his questions. He just wants to accuse God for the trouble and the pain that he's experiencing. Now we can learn something about David's condition by analyzing these four questions. The first two, in fact, have to do with his relationship with God, right? He's feeling uh, forgotten and completely abandoned. And so this was deeply personal for David. Because David's desire was to see God's face. And throughout the Psalms, you see this phrase over and over, that I might seek God's face, that I might see your face. This was his deepest spiritual desire. It was the desire of his heart. Listen to a couple of these. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous and he loves justice. The upright will see his face. David wanted to be one of those upright that would see his face. Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. And Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. That's the one desire of his heart. And then later on in Psalm 27, ironically interestingly, or ironically, I don't know, I don't know what the word was actually. But next week we're going to be looking at Psalm 27, is what I was trying to say. But Psalm 27, verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. So to see God's face. And, and was, was David's deep and expressed desire to see or to have God now hide his face from him was deeply personal and painful. And to suddenly feel like God is distant and it was just distressing to David. There was no other word for it. He was in utter despair. To, to, to not see God's face, it was as if God was then withholding any kind of practical help that he might offer to him. And when we think about the marks of a genuine relationship with God through Jesus, a relationship that's marked by joy and with peace and with hope and with freedom, it follows then that if God has somehow abandoned us, then maybe those things are gone too. And so it's no wonder that David felt deep despair. But it wasn't enough that he wrestled and complained about his relationship with God. He also was struggling with his relationship with himself. He was personally restless and experiencing deep turmoil. Because he uses this phrase, he says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? And so David was experiencing a turmoil of thought. So it wasn't just this sort of a a dull ache of, of dejection. He's wondering now, how long am I going to have to bear this pain? There, there's a, a psychological aspect to this condition. It's one thing, right, to think things over, but it's a whole other thing to, to totally keep ruminating on the thing that's bothering us, right? We experience a, an event that's traumatic in our life, and it raises a bitterness in our life, and all we can think about is the bitterness of that moment or that situation. And you put that video on a, on a loop, replaying it over and over again in your mind and you're you're just starting to churn inside if that's true of you you can identify with david and say yeah i wrestle with my thoughts i don't know what to do with them anymore job knew a little something of this condition as well in job chapter thirteen, verses 25 through 27 we read this job saying this he says have i not wept for those in trouble Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning, he says, the churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. You see, when we're in a prolonged struggle a difficult situation experiencing pain and feeling like god has forgotten and forsaken us all we can do is think about that over and over and the pain and the sorrow just seems to intensify and we start to think that this is never ever going to end some of you probably know exactly what david was experiencing but if david was feeling disoriented with respect to his relationship with God and his relationship with himself. He's also feeling it with respect to others or his enemies, he says. He says, how long will my enemy triumph over me? How long will my enemy triumph over me? So David likely was thinking here about a threat to his kingship. He comes back to this theme in verse 4, as we're going to see in a moment. But right here in verse 2, he's wondering, he's asking of God, like, where is your justice? Where is the rightness in all of this? The triumph of enemies over those who are righteous, in fact, is an accusation against God. And David, again, is wondering here, how long is this going to go on? How long, God, are you going to allow this to happen? Where are you? Friends, can I tell you something this morning? I don't know about you, but I know that I can so identify with what David is experiencing here. I have certainly in the past, and truthfully I am in the present as well. And sometimes I just cry out, God, where are you in all of this? How long is this going to continue? I can't take it anymore. Two thousand and twelve my mom spent nine weeks in palliative care when they told us to expect two weeks. Day after day we wondered, Is this the day? Is this the day? And and while we would hope for a miracle, barring a miracle, we knew that she would ultimately pass away. Her body was riddled with cancer. It was a long nine weeks. In 1998, Tina spent a week in intensive care, three more weeks in a specialized observation unit, three more weeks in a rehab hospital, relearning to walk and put on her socks. And I remember sitting in that waiting room, many a night, just crying, God, how long is this going to continue? All the documentation that I had read on Guillain-Barre syndrome said there was really no definite time period. It could be a year. I remember going, a year of this? I think I've had even my enemies in the past. Sometimes it's an occupational hazard, in fact. As a leader, sometimes you make decisions that people disagree with, or you don't make decisions that people expect you to make. Or sometimes as a pastor, you, 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 you make difficult decisions because of your own biblical convictions. For example, as much as I would want to share in the joy of your marriage, if you're professing faith in Jesus and your future spouse isn't a follower of Jesus, I can't officiate at your, at your wedding. And I remember in a previous church having, having had to have that difficult conversation. It was a lady in her church. She was a little bit older. It was her second marriage. And the, after her first marriage failed, she came to Jesus. He was a regular part of our church. She started to date a, somebody who was not a believer. And I had to sit down and say, I'm sorry. Talks about the scriptures. Talk about being unequally yoked. And if you're going to yoke together in marriage, you want to be both pulling in the same direction. You can imagine how that went over left the church she told all her friends we're in a small community you see her at one end of the of the aisle and you see an about face and you walk away and for three or four years this just went on until one day and i don't share this because oh look at me the vindication but three years later i got a letter from her apologizing for that and unfortunately saying that you were right because that second marriage failed Now, there's always exceptions to the rule. (laughs) But why do we take the chance? You know what's great about these verses is that they don't actually tell us specifically why David was so distressed. And the reason I think it's great is because it speaks then more to the human condition. Right? Because if it was so specific, we'd all go, well, that's never been my situation. I can't relate to that. But because it's so general, we're like, well, we can all relate to that. And so right now, as you stop and think about this, what is your situation? What is it that you're facing? Is it some prolonged illness with no answers, no direction? Some commentators actually think that it might have been illness that caused David to be in such despair. Or maybe you just feel stuck in a situation right now. You don't know how it's going to end. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. You've been waiting. I want us just to take a moment, 30 seconds at most. Just close your eyes and pray and ask, just be honest with God and say, How long, Lord? is this going to continue? And then just park it there because we're going to continue. But but what is the situation? I want you to, to just name it again this morning, okay? So just take 30 seconds. David's condition is just this utter despair. So not surprisingly, he cries out to God. Verses 3 and 4. It's not that he wasn't already, in a sense, crying out to God, right? How long, God? But the focus now of his cry has changed. First, he was accusing God of not doing anything about the pain and the distress that he was feeling, and now he cries out to God and asks him to turn towards him and to help him. And so he says this, he says, "'Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall.'" And we see a a glimpse into the personal and intimate relationship David did have with God. He cries out to God here. He says, Lord, my God, my God. He's a personal God. He has just vented. He's hit God with this flurry of complaints. And now he acknowledges and reaffirms his relationship. My God. And I love the honesty and the practicality of this prayers. Because he feels like God is hiding his face from him. So he prays, God, look on me. Look over here. I feel like you've turned your back on me. So please look at me now. And don't just look at me. I need an answer. You need to notice that this prayer, in fact, is a turning point in this whole psalm. Because in verses 1 and 2, David was complaining about his condition, that God wasn't, wasn't even fair. It was totally unfair, you would think. But God can handle our complaints and our questions. We can be honest with them. But now David kind of softens and he offers this honest, heartfelt prayer. Look on me. Answer me. Give light to my eyes. Is an indirect cry for God's intervention in his situation. And what God answers and gives the help David needs, Needs his eyes, he says, will shine once again. Do You see how beautifully descriptive this is, right? Because when someone is feeling such utter despair as David was, you can see it, like, in their eyes, right? In their face, their whole manner is just like, this is a heavy weight that I've been carrying for a long time. We see them, we go, what's wrong? Now, some hide it better than others, right? But you can almost see it in their eyes because you 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 notice that there's like a lack of joy in their eyes. But when all is right in your inner world, there is light in our eyes. It shines. And when our experience is that God is distant and we cry to God and we say, look, answer, give light, we are asking, we are in fact seeking God's face. We express our desire for God to come near to us. David makes it clear that this dreadful situation that he's experiencing is beyond his own ability to cope with it. He sees no way out unless God acts. And he basically says, listen, if God doesn't act, there's a lot at stake here. He says, because if you don't, I will die. That's why... A lot of commentators think that he's, he's, he's actually being uh, truthful and, and that it's a literal statement. He's, he's thinking about if he doesn't help with his, with his health, this illness that he's dealing with, that he might die from that. He says, you know, God, also at stake is the fact that if you don't act, my enemy's going to say that I've overcome him. They've triumphed. In fact, my enemies are going to rejoice when I fall. So David is essentially turning this back on God. And these problems that David was experiencing, he says, they're now God's problems. And now God is being told what God needs to know. Isn't that the mystery of prayer? Many people come to pray, and they know that God knows everything, and so they say, well, why should we even pray? But we pray not, not, not for God's sake, but for ours. Of course we aren't telling God something that he doesn't already know. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. We say, God, you know, I I really need help here with... And God's like, really? Seriously? I thought you had this all on your own. Something remarkable happens when we simply acknowledge, God, I can't. But you can. God says, I know. Such a privilege, isn't it? To cry out to the God of heaven, the God of the universe, in our times of despair, when we're facing challenges, when we think think things just aren't going our way. I mean, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says in in chapter 4 and verse 14, 14, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess." an incredible promise. It just says, hey, with confidence, come to God. Come to His throne of grace. And there you'll find the mercy and you'll find the grace to help you in your time of need. Or as the hymn writer put it, and we're probably familiar with this hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have you ever wondered why we don't get answers to our prayers sometimes? Number one, because we don't pray. (laughs) It's obvious. You know, we go through life and we're dealing with the difficult situations. I've been there. It's just like you're three days into it and you're suddenly like, I haven't even stopped to pray about this. It's a fundamental reason we don't pray. Secondly, because we pray wrongly. Because we really just want what we want for ourselves. We haven't put it in the context of what God wants. And thirdly, because we pray once and then we quit. We're not persistent in prayer. And often when we pray and then we really stop and listen, God reorients our thinking and our perspective changes. So again, let's just now take a minute again to pray. Think back to that situation that you surfaced earlier for you as you thought about it. There's something that's happening. You're not sure how long you have to wait, but you're waiting. Now, express that and ask God for specific help in that situation. Just bow your eyes, <laughs> close your eyes, bow your head, and just pray. Ask God for the help that you need. Cry out to him. So we've looked at David's condition, we've looked at his cry, and lastly, we look at the choice that he makes. Verses 5 and 6. Starts in verse 5, you see another shift now happening. He says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And that but is actually helpful, right? Because it indicates a reversal. It's a turning point. And the I, in fact, is emphatic. It's like, but I will make an intentional choice right now. However deep my despair is, I will cry out to you, and then I'm going to make a conscious decision based on what I know and not on what I am feeling. Do you hear that? You make a conscious decision based on what we know, not on what we are feeling. Friends, this is fantastic. Because if you're following along, if you read it in the whole context, things have now taken a dramatic shift. David is on his way to a new orientation. And this is where it gets theological. Because where we take what we know to be true and apply it to the very real experiences of life. That's what we do with theology. It's what we know to be true about God and we apply it to life. And to the experience of life. And David then is able to make a very bold declaration, a declaration of confidence. He makes three statements in very quick succession. He says, I trust, I will rejoice, I will sing. Why can David so confidently declare this? What's his motivation? Because he knows that God's covenant remains. His love never changes. His love, he says, is unfailing. His love is steadfast. And therefore, David chooses to trust. And as bleak as his situation appears, he's cried out to God, he's waited for some time, and now he comes to the place of trusting once again. And what's amazing here is that there's absolutely no indication that any of his circumstances have changed at all. But he knows that God loves him. He knows that God has saved him. And he knows that God has been good to him. And the despair and the distress that he felt earlier has now been overcome with joy because he is now orientated once again to what he knows to be true about God. He may feel abandoned. It's a true and real feeling, but he's not. He may feel forgotten, but he has not been. And he can say with confidence that he trusts in God's unfailing love. The verb form here for trust is a, it's a completed action. So it should be read, I have trusted. And so now David is trusting again because he has trusted God in the past. And trust was an old habit for David. That's why I want to say to you this morning that habits are in fact good in our Christian life. And we should, in fact, cultivate holy habits so that we can say, this is what I'm going to do. Like David, I'm going to be a truster because there are going to be times in my life when I don't feel like trusting. So I'm just going to start to prepare for that now. And walking with Jesus has helped when we develop good spiritual habits uh, like, sometimes people look at habits and, and, and they see them as useless and they worry that something just becomes a routine and it loses its meaning. And I'll say, well, you know, I don't want to come to worship just out of habit. Why not? It's a good habit. Right? You've got lots of good habits in your, type, in, your, in your life. Do you brush your teeth regularly out of habit? Hopefully. If not, there's some dentists I'll introduce you to. Floss wipe your armpits with five strokes of deodorant to do well in school you have to develop good study habits sometimes you kiss your spouse out of habit don't you It's probably not always a mad passionate kiss we just do it we do it because it's a good thing so it is with good holy spiritual habits Where you can declare today, you say, you know what, I will spend 15 to 20 minutes, more if I can, every day, every day in silence and solitude with God and with my Bible. That is a habit that I want to develop in my life. Or I'm going to have a day of Sabbath rest every week because that is a good habit that God instituted for my good. I'm going to make prayer a good spiritual habit. I will come to worship. And like David, I will rejoice. I will sing. I will sing, no matter what's going on inside. And you say, well, but I didn't really like that song. I didn't feel like singing. So what? Who cares? Nobody. Sing of the Lord's praise. Why? Because he has been good to you. That's why we do what we do. Because he's been good. And we get to declare his goodness. So in about 15 minutes, we're going to walk out of here and we're going to walk back into the reality of life and some of the same circumstances. They haven't changed because you've been here for the last hour. Like David, nothing will necessarily change immediately. Nothing's going to change externally. But the change happens inside. And everything starts to change. Well, that's the condition, that's the cry, and that's the choice that David made. And it's one that we can pray like this. We say, God, I can't see you right now. Inside, I'm just churning away. There's emotional and mental turmoil. My enemies are about to dance on my grave. So I cry out to you. I seek your face, oh God. Turn to me. Turn my darkness into light. Right now, I am making a choice. I have trusted before, and I will trust now. I will rejoice. My lips will move as I sing your praises because you've been so good to me. Friends, make that your prayer this morning. Make that your prayer this morning. You know, as I thought about this and just kind of leading into a time of communion, it was remarkable to me how I just saw the parallels that Jesus understood this too. Now well, that's why on the cross he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about that. In that moment, Jesus knew what it felt like to be abandoned by his father. And he quotes Psalm 22, another psalm of David. And Jesus endured the shame and the cruelty of his enemies He could have done an end run. He could have called legions of angels to rescue him. But he was more concerned about rescuing you and me. And so he set his mind on coming through the horrible circumstances of his death in order to realize the victory of the resurrection. And I, for one, am so thankful that he did. He may have complained about the situation he was in, and he cried out to God, but he still made a deliberate choice to die for us. And so we gather around the table this morning with that thought in our minds about what God has done for us through Jesus and how truly good he has been. And because he's been so good, we can say, yet I will praise you.